Hello, and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. In his letter to the church in Rome so far, Paul has clearly explained the problem of mankind's natural inclination to sin and their separation from God. He has been careful to show that the old covenant, the law of Moses, couldn't fix that problem. He could say this because as a Pharisee, Paul knew more about the law than most people, but even he had not been able to do the good he knew that the law required. In fact, no one could. Everyone was bound to a law that they could not keep, caught up in a cycle of sin and death that they couldn't escape. However, the good news is that God himself has broken that cycle through Jesus Christ our Lord, who not only rescues those who commit their lives to him from the penalty of sin, but who also gives them the power of his Holy Spirit to live a new life in accordance with his commands. This is the gospel Paul longed to share with his readers in Rome. In chapter 8, Paul takes everything he's explained up to this point, everything from how we're justified by faith to how we've died with Christ and been raised with him to a new life, and he begins to describe what that new life looks like. He writes in Romans 8 verse 1, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. In these verses, Paul contrasts two laws, the law of the spirit of life and the law of sin and death. The law of the spirit of life is really the gospel, the good news of Jesus and the message of redemption freely given through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. The law of sin and death is the Old Testament law, which we've seen can only reveal sin, not rescue us from it. Those who trust in the law are condemned by its requirements and they are powerless to escape its demands. However, Paul declares that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. In other words, there is no longer any unfavorable judgment against those who have entrusted themselves to Christ's care. You see, when Jesus came in human flesh, he did not come to condemn us. Rather, he came to set us free from the old conditional covenant and the cycle of sin and death that we were ensnared by. He did what the law and its animal sacrifices could not do. He reconciled us to God. 
He became our lamb, our innocent substitute, as a sin offering on our behalf. His sacrifice fulfilled the law's demands, making us right before God. And when we place our faith in him, we are not only justified or made righteous, we also receive the Holy Spirit, who gives us the power to live a new life, not according to the sinful nature, but rather according to the Holy Spirit of God within us. Paul then draws a comparison between two kinds of people who live in two different ways. He says in verse 5, those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that sinful nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Paul says that there are two different kinds of life. There's the one dominated by the sinful human nature, and it has its focus on self and its own desires. And then there's another which is focused on what the spirit desires and that lives according to his direction. These two different ways of thinking and living are diametrically opposed to one another. In fact, Paul says one is death and one is life and peace. The one that is focused on sinful desires is hostile to God and resents his authority. And Paul emphasizes that those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. But he doesn't believe that his readers are like that. And so he begins to explain more about what life in the spirit looks like. He says in verse 9, You, however, are not controlled by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness." And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Paul is clear that those who have put their faith in Christ Jesus are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. And he wanted the believers in Rome to realize that because of the Spirit's power within them, an incredible transformation had occurred. They were no longer controlled by the sinful nature, but rather by the Holy Spirit. Paul assured them that even though their physical bodies were still subject to death, this was not the case with their spirits, for they have eternal life because Christ's righteousness had been credited to them. Our hope of the resurrection is that as God gave Jesus a glorified body at his resurrection, so too our perishable bodies will be renewed on the day that Christ returns. We will be given glorified, resurrected bodies like Jesus.
I understand that Paul's words here may cause questions to arise in our minds, particularly when Paul states that if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. And so I think it's very important for us to understand that the Scriptures are clear. When a person believes in Jesus Christ, they do receive the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 to 14, Paul explains that when we hear the gospel message and believe it, we are immediately sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is, he writes, a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit is the down payment, if you will, of all the good things to come when Christ returns. Some explain the promise as similar to an engagement ring. The ring marks a young lady as belonging to someone who loves her, who will one day take her as his bride and live with her. The Holy Spirit marks us as those who belong to God. That being said, Paul also taught that as those who belong to God, we should eagerly desire to be filled with the Spirit. Let me explain how I see this fulfilled in Scripture. In John chapter 20, on the same day that Mary Magdalene discovered that Jesus had risen from the dead, we are told that the disciples were meeting together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. It was then that the risen Christ came and stood among them, and we're told that he said, Peace be with you. He then breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. So according to John, it was on Resurrection Sunday that the disciples received the Holy Spirit as they believed the good news that even death had no hold on Jesus, they were marked with the seal of the Holy Spirit. Later in Acts 1, the scriptures then detail that Jesus appeared to the disciples over a period of 40 days, and we're then told that on one occasion he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. So despite the fact that the disciples had already received the Holy Spirit on the night of the resurrection, Christ commanded them to wait in Jerusalem for the gift of God's further empowerment. And in Acts chapter 2, at the Feast of Pentecost, we are told that all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit as God began to equip them further so that they could carry out his command to spread the good news about Christ and make believers of every nation. If we have trusted Jesus as our Savior, we have the Holy Spirit and we belong to Christ. However, each of us are to seek more of the Holy Spirit's power in order to live as God intends. Back in Romans then, 
Paul urges us to be led by God's Spirit in verse 12. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. As those who have been given this new life in Christ, we have a responsibility to leave our old way of life behind. Though even as Christians we may slip into sin from time to time, that should no longer be the habit of our everyday way of life, for we have been born again. Remember that Romans 6 taught us that we have been set free from the bondage of sin, that we once could not escape. We no longer have to live according to the sinful nature that once held us captive, but we must be willing to put to death the misdeeds of the body. There may be difficult choices or actions we'll need to take to accomplish that, and let me tell you, it may not be easy, but I do want you to notice something important here. Verse 13 tells us that it's only by the Holy Spirit's power that this is accomplished. In other words, though we are actively involved in the process of dying to sin and living for Christ, we can only do so by the power of the Holy Spirit. We have to remember that following our old way of life, the one directed by our sinful desires, only leads to separation from God. It leads to spiritual death. However, Christ has brought us into God's family and our willingness to be led by his Holy Spirit proves that we really are God's children. What an incredible privilege to actually be led by the Spirit of God. And what a transformation this brings. Paul goes on in verse 15 to say, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. We have been brought into a completely new way of living now that God is our beloved Father. Think for a moment of the ripple effects of Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden. No sooner had he put his own desires above God's and broken the Lord's command not to eat of the tree, he was overwhelmed by fear to the point that he and Eve hid from the Lord. Sin broke their intimate relationship with God and mankind was then cast out of God's presence, losing access to all they once had in that paradise. Their sin did not stop with them either. It even affected their children with Cain killing Abel. And as sin took hold of mankind, terrible suffering and misery ensued. However, Christ has restored our relationship with God the Father, and he has breathed life into us again. 
As believers in Jesus, we are no longer slaves to fear. Instead, we are God's children. In other translations of this text, Paul reveals that those who have entrusted themselves to Christ have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. In that one word, adoption, Paul was creating a powerful picture for the church in Rome that he knew would help them understand what they had received as members of God's family. In the culture of that time, the Roman father had complete authority over his family. Until he died, he held even the power of life and death over his children, no matter how old they were. They were under his absolute control. This made adoption into a different family a very difficult and serious process, one that was carried out in public with great ceremony. First, the child who was being adopted would be symbolically sold to their new father, completely ending the claims of the first father over his child. The adoptive father then had to appear before the Roman court and present the legal case for the child to be transferred into his custody. Seven witnesses had to be present to ensure that any future challenges to the adoption or the inheritance it guaranteed would not succeed. It was only after this that the adoption was considered complete and the child belonged to their new father. Adoption completely changed the life of the adoptee, and Paul hoped the Romans would immediately make the connection. First, upon adoption, a child lost all rights in their old family and gained all the rights of a legitimate child in their new family. They would now be considered equal heirs with any natural-born children, and no one could deny them the right to inherit the adoptive father's estate. Paul underscores that in verse 17, saying, If we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. That means that we stand to inherit everything God has for us. What a blessed assurance that is. In the eyes of Roman law, the adopted child was unquestionably the child of the new father, and the past no longer had any hold on them. Can you see how important it is that we understand that that is true for us in a spiritual sense as well? By using this image of adoption, Paul wants to assure his readers that we have been purchased by God and released from our old debts and that we now have an inheritance as a child of God. Our standing as his child is never in question. However, we do need to remember that even though we have this glorious inheritance to look forward to, we will share in Christ's sufferings so that we may also share in his glory. What does Paul mean by that? Well, when a person belongs to God and lives in line with the Holy Spirit as one of God's children, like Christ, they will most certainly be brought into conflict with the world. We may indeed suffer at the hands of others because of our faith. However, 
some of our suffering may also come from saying no to our old desires and by refusing to live as we did before we came to Christ. For some of us, that might mean no longer doing something we used to. For others, it may entail ending a relationship that does not conform to God's word. Living for Christ may cause us pain and even anguish at times, but no servant is above his master. Christ was willing to endure terrible suffering for our benefit. Is he not worth our temporary discomfort that we might share in his glory? Paul then goes on to put everything into perspective in verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Paul acknowledges that the Christian is not exempt from suffering, but he assures us that anything we endure in the present cannot be compared to the glory that we will know at the second coming of Christ. On that day when Christ returns, we will receive our full inheritance, and what a wonderful day that will be. This is also the day that all of creation is waiting for. A day when everything shall be made right by God. Paul points out in verse 20 that all of creation was subject to frustration by the fall, not just mankind. In verse 22, he pictures creation itself groaning as if in childbirth and says it is eagerly awaiting the day of our redemption when it too shall be set free from the effects of sin. Paul continues in verse 23, Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Because of our experience of the Holy Spirit, we as believers have a foretaste of what that glorious day shall be like. Even now, the price for our redemption has been paid. We have a new father, but we still wait for the final judgment at which our adoption will be made final. And we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our full adoption as sons and for the redemption of our bodies. How many of us have ever said, Oh Lord, come quickly, or Jesus, take me now. We long to be with him, to be free from the very presence of sin, sickness and death. 
We long to receive our glorious resurrected body, which shall be like Christ's glorified body in every way. What will that be? Well, we don't know in every detail, but we do know from the Gospels that Jesus' resurrected body bore similarities to his earthly body in that he could eat food, he could be recognized, and he had a physical body that could be touched. Yet, his resurrection body was not limited by the laws of physics, for he was able to appear inside a room despite the fact that the door was locked. Paul declares that because we have the certain expectation of being made like Christ when he returns, we eagerly look forward to that day when our lowly earthly bodies will be redeemed and made new. Paul states that in this hope we were saved. But in order for us to understand what he means, it's very important that we look at his use of the word hope in the text. We often use the word hope in our everyday speech, don't we? We say that we hope to have a job soon or we hope to build a house one day, meaning that our intention or desire is to have or do a certain thing, but that it is not certain. It is not assured. However, the biblical word hope as it's used here is altogether different. The Greek word is elpis, which means the joyful and confident expectation that God shall certainly keep his promises to us. Of course, hope, no matter how certain, always points to the future, for as Paul states here, no one hopes for what he already has. But because of God's past faithfulness, we can be sure that he shall keep his promises in the future. Until that blessed day, we wait patiently, not with weary disillusionment, but rather with excited expectation as we trust in him. And as we wait, we pray, but we do not pray alone. Listen to what Paul says next in verse 26. In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints, God's people, in accordance with God's will. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Paul reassures us of the Spirit's help. Our knowledge of God's purposes is often limited. Sometimes we do not even know how to pray over a situation, and at other times we may pray incorrectly. For example, we often pray to avoid trials when God in his wisdom knows that they will be for our ultimate blessing and benefit. At other times, we plead for certain things without realizing that if our request were granted, it might lead to a harm or loss that we cannot foresee. We can take great courage from the fact that at times like that, the Holy Spirit is also interceding for us, and he prays in accordance with God's will for us. He knows what to ask for, even when we don't. 
As James encouraged in James chapter 1 verses 2 through 4, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. We can rejoice in trials because of what they are able to accomplish in our lives. It is in the difficult times of life that true faith is shown, for then we cannot merely operate by sight. We have to depend on God. James promises that faith, when tested, produces perseverance and maturity as long as we hold firmly to the Lord. He will use our struggles not only to develop us, to train us in godliness and maturity, but also to teach us things about ourselves and about him that we can learn no other way. No athlete wants to train on difficult paths, but there is great benefit for those who do. There is something else, though, that I want you to see as we end this part of chapter 8. God promises to work good in every situation for those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. What's God's purpose? God's purpose is that all come to faith in his Son. When we respond to his offer of salvation and place our trust in Christ, we become those adopted children Paul described in verse 15 and 16. We enter into a relationship with God as our loving Father. We love Him. We stay close to Him. We talk to Him. We listen to Him. We obey Him. And He takes everything that comes to us and works it all together for our good. That is what a loving Father does. May we learn to be His loving children. This section of text has so much to teach us. We'll have to leave it there for this week, but we'll revisit this next time we're together. And believe me when I say, you won't want to miss it. God bless you. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.